We are moving into this portion of Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, where he is now going to begin to address how God's people should begin to conduct themselves in public worship. As I stated a few moments ago, that's really the purpose of these epistles. In fact, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we have the thesis statement uh, of Paul's purpose of writing this particular letter. And that is that the people of God who comprise the local church, which he calls the pillar and buttress of the truth, those people need to know how to behave in God's household. There is certain conduct that is expected of the people of God when they come together, when they gather for public worship. Now, he's addressing a lot of crazy stuff that is happening. You read the letter to the church at Corinth. You know that was a church that was a little messed up, right? Or a lot messed up. And so he's got to deal with issues there. They need to learn how to conduct themselves. And, and he's obsessed with there being a right order in the church. Why? Because it's God's household. It's not our household. You may have your own rules at your house. And when I come to your house and others visit your house, you would expect them to conform and comport themselves according to your rules. And God's household has rules because it's his house, right? We're part of his family and he's graciously invited us into his home. And we want to know how to conduct ourselves there. Now, in chapter 1, as we looked at over the past four Sundays, Timothy is called and exhorted and urged to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preserve sound doctrine, to confront those who were teaching heresy, who were teaching a different doctrine, myths and speculations and endless genealogies. And Paul is saying, you need to confront those who are distorting and perverting the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are to stop what they are doing. Timothy is to guard the gospel. Timothy is to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare because the gospel is worth it. Last week we looked at Paul's celebration of the gospel as he called to mind what God rescued him from. How God came to him, how the grace of the Lord and the mercy of God came to Paul who was a blasphemer and a persecutor, and he called himself an insolent opponent, right? He was hostile to Christianity, and God radically transformed his life, saved him, and he said, God did that because me being the chief of sinners was going to serve as an example to everyone else who's going to be saved. Because if God could save Paul, he could save anybody. And he gave us that beautiful, succinct statement of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That must be safeguarded. We need to fight. That's the hill to die on. Now, this chapter is among one of the most controversial of all chapters in the Bible. And you might be thinking, what? Well, read, read on a little bit and you see why. Especially when it starts talking about the role of men and women in public worship. And what that's going to look like. And you'll see quickly how that grates against uh, our culture. But not just our culture. The different beliefs concerning this that even exists in God's church. Um, So as I said and prayed for, have an open heart and mind. Our job is to be like the Bereans, right? Go back to the Word of God and see what is it that the Word of God teaches. Because I really don't care what culture has to say about the role of men and women. I have, I have no interest in caring what any man has to say about what public worship is supposed to look like. 
I only care what God has to say about it. And you should only care what God has to say about it. And even if it flies in the face of anything our world says of how things are supposed to be, here's where we land. Every time, here's what will follow, no matter the cost, right? No matter the price to pay. So we're going to be faithful to Scripture. And that's all I ask of the people of God here. Be faithful to the word of the Lord. We obey God, not man. Amen? All right. Well, we're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Our concentration today is going to be verses 1 through 4. Hear the words of the living God. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. These are the words of the Lord. Look how Paul starts his writing here. First of all, then. First of all. And what does he mean by first of all? Does he mean first in terms of the order of time and sequence of time? No, that's, that's not what he has to, to mean here. He's not talking about first in the order of events in terms of time, but rather he's talking about the primacy of importance here. This is to be the highest and of greatest import to the church of Jesus Christ. You know, if we were to ask a sampling of people here, what do you think is of first importance to the church? Of course, we would say the gospel. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15. But in terms of the uh, activities that a church is to be engaged in here, what is the most important? A lot of people would probably say evangelism is one of the most important things to do. Or or the good works, you know, that we do in service to others, love of neighbor and, and our community, right? There'd be a lot of things we could mention are of highest or most important. And the church can be good at a lot of those things. In fact, the church is good at many things. The church has specialized and excelled in the areas of service to community, right? All, all the greatest uh, nonprofits out there and, and uh, service organizations that love and care for the people of the community, those are ministries of, of many churches, and they're doing an incredible job. The church is excellent, right, in having high-octane musical events and concerts. Many churches have dynamic communicators and showmen that can really tickle the ears. They excel in that. Churches excel in having programs that can meet every possible felt need of their congregants. The church has excelled in a myriad of activities, But where the church is not specialized in or become subject matter expert in is what Paul classifies here as of 
first and primacy here and of paramount importance. First of all, then, he says the church is to be about what? Prayer. Prayer. First of all, then, prayer, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving are to be made. We would take good note here of what Paul is determining is to be, and what he's concerned about is of paramount importance of the church. What drives the ordering of our public worship here has to be what God says our public worship is to consist of. Not what's cool, not what, the, not what our surrounding communities want out of our worship, but what God has to say is important, the important elements of worship. Worship in the church should be according to God's word, according to what he wants, and according to the order he has established. First Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks about there being order, right? All things should be done decently and in order. And everything in the church should be done for the purpose of edifying the church and building the church of Jesus Christ up. First of all, then, I urge. Here's a second time. Now, Paul is urging Timothy in a direction. The first there is in chapter 1 where he urges Timothy, where he says, I urged you to remain in Ephesus for the purpose of confronting the false teachers and establishing the rules, right? Teaching the church of God how to conduct themselves, how to behave themselves in God's household. Now he's urging and exhorting him to give priority to what is essential in public worship and to public worship. Paul had laid a foundation for how the church should safeguard the sound doctrine, the good news, the gospel, the good deposit. He calls it by different names, but he's all referring to that apostolic teaching, the teaching of Christ, right? And he gloriously celebrated the gospel, and now he says, here's what's important. First of all, then. Now, that is telling us he's linking it to what he had just been talking about. He's linking it to what had come before, right? So it's connected to that argument he has been rolling forward here. Guarding sound doctrine is linked to prayer. A church's prayer is a reflection of its doctrine, you will know a lot more about church, a church's theology, not by what they put on their website, but how they pray. And the content of the church's prayer tells you what they truly believe to be true. When I hear people pray, I can tell what has influenced them theologically and doctrinally. I can tell if they come from a word of faith background. I can tell, you know, their depth of knowledge of God's word, right? Through how an individual prays. Well, the collective prayer of a church tells us a lot about the theology of a church and what a church believes. And that's why this is so important and so linked. Now, this passage goes through all seven. All seven verses are a connected thought. We're going to deal with the first part of it today, and we will conclude next Sunday through verse seven. But I want you to pay attention to the repeated words. In January, when we walk through how to interpret God's Word and to really understand what it means, how to study God's Word, we talked about the principles of interpretation. And one of the most important hermeneutical principles is to pay attention to the words. We need to know what the words mean. And especially when we see repeated words, we start to say, okay, there's a point that the writer's trying to make here. And so I want you to pay attention to the repeated words, but namely to the word all. 
You'll see that repeated several times here. But four times specifically, all is used to stress the global or universal concern of the church in public worship. Because God's plan, which is also our duty, has wide-ranging implications. Look, the first time he uses all, it's first, prayers are to be made for all people. All people. Then he says, secondly, God our Savior desires all people to be saved. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Thirdly, it tells us, he tells us that Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Verse 6. And fourthly, even though the word all is not used, this is what he means here, right? He is stressing that he is a preacher and teacher and an apostle to whom? To the Gentiles. For what purpose? To demonstrate that his gospel is to go to people everywhere, to all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone. It's for the ethnos. It's for all people groups. And these four truths are in the forefront of Paul's message to Timothy. Beloved, the church's concern is for everyone. The church is not to be this exclusive elitist community. It is to be an inclusive. Now, I know that word inclusive has some dirty connotations out there. Your organization might be pursuing diversity, equity, and inclusion and all that stuff. That's not how I'm using this terminology here. No one's out when it comes to the gospel proclamation. No one's out concerning what he expresses here about who is to be prayed for, the desire of God, his disposition towards all people and all mankind, Christ giving himself as a ransom for all and those implications. And next week we'll explore what that means and study that. But the reality of what Paul himself was, an apostle to the Gentiles, taking it from the Jews who were an elite group. The Jews didn't want the Gentiles to hear the gospel. They didn't think that was for them. Messiah was for the Jews. And Paul is saying, no, no, it's not just for the Jews. He's for everyone. And that's who he was taking the gospel message to. Now let's look at all kinds of prayers here. For he says, first of all then, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made. Four terms he uses here in regards to worship through some form of prayer, using these terms. That's the church's responsibility, to offer up supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, you might be thinking, what's the difference? These words seem interchangeable. They seem synonymous. You're right. They are. I studied quite a few commentaries trying to like, yeah, because I'm like... Prayer, supplication, intercession, like I use those interchangeably, so do you. Let's see what these brilliant commentators have to say. Guess what they all said? We're not really sure uh, what Paul meant here by, all, by using these four different terms. I mean, we can have an idea. I mean, does he mean general requests? Yes. Specific requests? Yes. Prayers for salvation? Yes. Prayers for the church? Yes. Prayer for the world? Yes, prayers of confession, yes, prayers of thanksgiving, yes, 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 right? Because it's not really important to define what Paul meant by these individual terms here. The point is that he is insisting on the centrality of prayer. That is of paramount importance. And what kind of prayer? All types of prayer. 
every kind of prayer imaginable, Paul says the church should be making those particular prayers, intercessions, standing in the place of or standing alongside. Yes, we do that when we intercede on behalf of someone else. All types of prayers should be offered. So let's kind of give some definition to prayer so we are kind of in agreement of what we're talking about here. What is prayer? Well, it's helpful to turn to catechisms that we uh, trust, our own Baptist catechism, question 105. What is prayer? Well, prayer is defined as an offering up of our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, believing with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. You'll see prayer consists of a variety of things in that particular answer to the question 105. Again, it's offering, offering up of our own desires to God. Whatever those desires are, they may be personal needs, they may be general needs, they may be specific, they may be about ourselves. they may be about someone else or for the church or for our community or any number of things aided by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We're dependent on the power of God's Spirit to pray. He's the one who takes our jumbled fleshly prayers and conforms them to the will of God so they're offered up before the throne of grace. We pray in the name of Christ because we only have access to the throne of grace by the work of Jesus Christ, by His blood. He is the one who tore the veil in two so that we have access and can obtain grace and mercy in our time of need, right? It involves confession of our sins and involves thanksgiving and praise. That's a lot. Question 116 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Well, here's the answer. Because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. And also, because God will give His grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continually ask them of Him and are thankful for them. We see thanksgiving is an important element of prayer. We see Holy Spirit dependence is an important element of prayer. We see it involves us asking things. Isn't that what Jesus referred to? When you ask for anything in my name, right? Prayer involves asking for stuff. Spiritual, material, but you're asking for stuff, aren't you? So I like a little shortened definition of prayer that I like to use, that prayer is the expression of our thankfulness and dependence on God through requests. Thankfulness and dependence on God through our requests. What is it that we do when we ask God of things? When we present our requests to God, right? What we're doing is we're expressing a need we have, a desire of our heart. Ultimately, there's no greater need that you and I have than to know more of God, to love God more, to obey God more, to seek to please God, right, in every way. And, and prayer enables us towards that end. It involves asking for things we need in our day-to-day life. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, do we not ask, give us this day, as Jesus instructed us, give us this day what? Deadly prayer, what we have need of right now. Sustenance for today, not for tomorrow, but for right now, immediate needs. Those are things we pray for, okay? When we pray, we're declaring our dependence on God to bring things about that you and I cannot bring about of our own. 
Do you pray for something that you can rightly do? That's usually not what we pray. Now, we should pray to God for everything. I'll talk about that in a moment. But if it's something we can generate or do by our own strength, our own power, or bring it about by our own will, those are not the requests we bring to God. We come to God because we know He can where we cannot. We, we bring our request to God because we know if He does not intervene, if He does not act, then what I desire will not come to pass. Prayer is a humbling experience. I don't know if you know this or not, but you don't have as much control over things as you think you do. You don't have as much control over your own life as you think you do. Why pray? We pray because we have one and we come to one who does have all control over every aspect of not only my life, but of all the cosmos, over his entire creation. That's who we come to in prayer. So when we pray, it teaches us to trust him, to depend on him, to see him as the source of all things, and to place our faith in him. Prayer is not, brothers and sisters, you trying to strong-arm God and twist his arm to bend him to your will. I'm going to pray to get God do something for me that he doesn't want to do, but I'm going to make him do it because I'm going to bombard him with prayers. And you might laugh, but listen to how some people pray. That's what they actually believe prayer entails. Prayer is not reminding God of his promises like if he's some forgetful elderly president. I'm not going to name who that might be, right? But it's not, God's not, did not forget his promises, I don't need to remind him of things because he's forgetful or doesn't want to do certain things. Pay attention to how we pray. And God is also not dependent on our prayers to decide what he is or is not going to do. He's not waiting for, oh gosh, I can't wait for Susie to pray. Can't wait for Mary to pray. I can't wait for Bob to pray because I don't know what to do next. So what are they going to ask for? And, And then I'll know I'll have direction. No, 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 that's not, who we, that's not who we're praying to, brothers and sisters. Prayer is about us, isn't it? Prayer is about us. Prayer doesn't change God. God is immutable. And we're going through systematic theology in our, in our home groups, in our city groups. You're going to see these attributes of God when we begin to talk about the immutability of God. God cannot change. He is unchangeable, and praise God that He is immutable and unchangeable. And that our prayer does not change God. That has some severe implications, a path you and I do not want to go down. Prayer changes us. Prayer conforms our heart to His will. When I pray, and I'm in His Word, and I'm praying His Word, guess whose will is being conformed? Not God's. Mine is. I begin to want what God wants, not the other way around. Prayer is a means that God has ordained to bring about what he has purposed. In the brilliant, right, sovereign mind of God, he has ordained means to bring things about in this world, and one of them has to do with his saints praying, with you and I praying. 
That when we pray, things he has purposed from eternity past, a will that he's decreed to take place, happens when we pray. But guess what? It's not the result of our prayer. It's that our sovereign God ordained this before time even began for you to pray, and this result comes about. So it's not you who gets the credit for that. That's all him. I don't understand how all that works. I don't have to, though. I just need to be obedient to pray. And our confidence, brothers and sisters, is that God answers prayer. Do you believe that? Sometimes we pray, and we pray like, I don't even know if God answers prayer. He does. Lots of prayers. Every prayer, right, that that is in accord with His will, He says, He answers. Everything that's conformed to His will, He answers. So what a holy privilege you and I have to fellowship and commune with our God, to come before Him with our requests, to ask of Him, to do things, to, to work on our behalf. And in that, God begins to work in our own heart. We begin to love the things God loves. We begin to desire the things that God desires. And we pray, conform to His will, which is His word. And He answers those prayers. He answers those prayers. Now, Philippians 4, 6 instructs us that in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love the encouragement from Paul there to the church at Philippi. What are we to pray for? What are we to pray for? Everything. Everything. There is no limit to what you can ask for. There is no limit to the substance uh, and content of your prayer. That means you're not only limited to be asking for spiritual matters. Lord, help me to love your word. Lord, help me to share the gospel. Those are beautiful and important prayers. But you can ask for physical and material things that you have need of as well. In fact, isn't that what we're encouraged to do? Jesus even tells us that. Don't be anxious for anything. God knows what you have need of. He knows it's the little. We can come to God even the little things that are little to us. Because we think, God, man, he might. I can't bother the Lord of the universe with this. He got to deal with Russia and Ukraine. And what's going on with China and those balloons? And, you know, he's not going to worry about me having any money for gas for my car. Yeah, he does care. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Every single request. A father delights in his children coming to him with those. And we see this pattern of the primacy of prayer in the early church. Right in Acts chapter 2, after the experience of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the powerful preaching of the gospel, 3,000 added to the church. What do we find the church doing? In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. That's it. Here's your four easy steps to what a church is supposed to do. Right here. It's the ministry of the word, fellowship, Lord's Supper, and prayers. Prayers. That's what they devoted themselves to. In Acts 4, we see them praying for boldness in the face of persecution. 
In Acts chapter 6, we see the apostles tell the people, listen, you need to appoint for yourself deacons to begin to serve the people because guess what we need to devote ourselves to? Prayer and the ministry of the word. The church is to be a praying people, a praying church. Is it any wonder why the enemy works so hard to keep a Christian prayerless? And why most people, you might be sitting here today, even though I'm not telling you, you should pray. How many of you are praying? How much time you spend? You're probably sitting there going, man, I wish I prayed more. (laughs) Right? It's It's the one thing we all regret in our Christian walk. We're like, I wish I prayed more. How many of you wish you prayed more? We should all wish that, right? We all wish we would pray more. We we all wish we devoted more time to prayer. We know it's important. We know it's it's something of, of paramount importance. But why don't we do it? Well, there's a number of reasons. But beloved, beyond your flesh, you have a real enemy who seeks to oppose the prayers of the church. He could care less other things the church is engaged in. I like how Samuel Chadwick wrote, In Path of Prayer, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless works, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Why would he tremble at that? Well, those other things are of human effort and innovation. But a Christian who bows the knee in prayer is saying he's depending on the power of God. On the Spirit of God. He fears prayerless Christians. Not the other activities you and I engage in. Especially when they're not birthed or carried or sustained by spirit-fueled prayer. So pray. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray. Pray all kinds of prayers. This is what Paul is saying. I want all kinds of prayers. First of all then, pray all kinds of prayers. For yourself, for others, for the church, for the community, for the world. Cry out to God. Intercede for others. Because prayer should characterize our life as the people of God and followers of Jesus Christ. And prayer has to characterize what we do in our public worship. Every morning at 1035, every Sunday morning, we're here praying together. And I thank God for the group that is here every Sunday morning at 1035. But I'm going to invite the rest of you. 1035, we are praying together because first of all then, prayers are to be made. All kinds of prayers. We're praying. Join us here, 1035 before Sunday service as we call out to God. And then on Wednesday, March the 29th, we're going to be gathering again for another joint night of worship and prayer with Restoration Church, Powerline, and Safe Harbor, as we did last year. So we'll be announcing that as well. But we're coming together to pray because we believe God answers prayer. Now, Paul instructs that all kinds of prayers are to be made for whom? Paul. For all people. That's who we're to pray for. All people. What does he mean by all? Like everyone by name? Every single person on the planet? Well, we have to define all um, when we're looking at how it's used in this particular passage. Paul was more than likely addressing some type of exclusivist spirit that had crept into the church at Ephesus. Where these certain groups were excluding other people. Now, we already talked about the Jews 
kind of hating the Gentiles and didn't want the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Or we know from early Gnosticism that had kind of crept into the first century church there, right? This, there was this, these who had some secret knowledge and enlightenment and those who weren't enlightened weren't, um, didn't, you know, couldn't receive further deeper teaching and enlightenment that they had. Uh, we know that there was issues, socioeconomic issues, where the rich upper class, right, were excluding the poorer lower class, right? This is stuff that was happening in the church then. It's things that happen in the church today in, in, in similar fashions. Where there are false teachers limiting salvation to a small group of religious elites. And so Paul is trying to break this thing up. Trying to break this exclusivist spirit by exhorting them to pray for everyone without distinction. He doesn't mean every single person without exception. Well, that's kind of impossible. First of all, you don't know everyone by name. How are you going to pray for them by name? But without distinction. Making no discrimination in whom we pray for. See, there was this narrow-minded thinking that's an offense to the gospel, that the gospel is not for everyone. No, the gospel is to be extended without distinction. And when we pray for people, we pray with no categories in mind. There's not a single category of people that the church should not be praying for. Right? When we, again, we go back to Paul as our example. A blasphemer and a persecutor. And I'm sure there were Christians saying, that dude, don't even bother praying for Saul. He hates Christians. He hates Jesus. He's killing them. He's imprisoning them. He's outside of God's reach. And lo and behold, God saves him. So it's like, well, that blows that thought out of the water, doesn't it? If God can save Paul, he can save anyone. So who are you to withhold prayer from any people group or any kind of person? Do we judge them by ethnicity? Do we judge them by their outward appearance? By how much they agree with us or disagree with us? Whether we will or will not pray for them? No, without exception, the church of Jesus Christ, without distinction or discrimination, is to pray for all kinds of people. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. The scope of the church's prayer is universal and global. Everyone. Our prayer life must be as diverse as our communities and our world. We pray for everyone. Rich? Yes. Poor? Yes. Educated? Yes. Uneducated? Yes. Upper class? Yes. You're getting it. Middle class? Yes. Lower class? Yes. Homeless? Yes. Lives in a mansion? Yes. All kinds of people. Every ethnicity. From any nation, we pray. And in verse 2 now, he says, Now here's a group of people you should especially be praying for as well. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're especially pray for those who are in authority over us, governmental authority, those who are in high positions. Who is the emperor during the writing of this letter? Do you know? It was Nero. He was a bad dude. He was a wicked and perverse individual who hated Christians, who violently, per- violently persecuted Christians. And Paul is saying, guess what? Yeah, pray for him. 
you got to pray for Nero, the emperor, the king. Even for those kings and rulers who cause the suffering of God's people, especially those, the church should be praying for them. We don't just pray for those in authority over us or in positions of, of leadership over us who agree with us or who are sympathetic with Christianity or who don't have a problem with the church or who may be church-going people themselves. We're to pray for everyone, regardless of where they fall on that spectrum, whether they love the church or hate the church. I'd argue we especially want to pray for those who hate the church, shouldn't we? We're to pray for those who are not part of the same political party that you and I align with. Did you hear that? Those who do not agree with us, those whom we'd consider possibly as enemies, we're to pray for them. Now, you and I enjoy a certain level of religious freedom in our nation, and we should praise God for that. So we should pray and continue to pray for our president even though we have an administration that has proven to be hostile to people of faith. We do, unfortunately, have a president who is not sympathetic to the church, to the mission of the church, and to the work of the church in this world. That doesn't mean then we cease to pray for him and just, well, I'm just going to pray imprecatory prayers. God, smite him! No, that should not be the content of our prayers, brothers and sisters. Paul, notice, he doesn't say here, pray for Nero's destruction. He doesn't pray for Nero to be overthrown. I mean, he may have prayed for that, I don't know. But that's not the instruction he gave the church here. That's not the tone of what he's trying to address concerning the mission of the church and the primacy and centrality of prayer for the body of believers when they gather in public worship. So you and I are to pray for those in high positions over us, right? All, because it's God's will that we do that. President, vice president, senators, congressmen, our governor, all state and local officials, people of our own municipality. We should be praying for them. We should be praying for rulers in countries where people are oppressed and religious freedom and liberties are suppressed. See, it's easy to watch the news and listen to the pundits and get really, really angry, isn't it? I'm guilty as charged here. I ain't telling you anything I haven't done. I watch the news, man, and my blood level, I mean, my blood pressure is through the roof. I get angry at things that are happening in this world. You know what the people of God should be doing? Bowing the knee in prayer. Praying for those. Pray for those who oppose our faith and the truth. Pray for those individuals. Bow the knee. It is God who controls the affairs of this world. I don't know if you know this or not, but every authority on earth has been instituted by God. Did you know that? Yeah, even the ones that you don't agree with. And the ones who disagree with us. And that doesn't rock God, does it? God's knees aren't quaking and shaking. And He's not angry. He's orchestrating. He's accomplishing His will and purpose even through these crooked individuals and people, even through people like Nero, right? And Paul is saying, here's what the church does. Pray for all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, especially these people who are in positions of leadership. And there's two reasons we should be praying for all people 
offering every kind of prayer and praying for those who are in rulership. The first reason he gives us here is that we can then expect to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. You know how the church can have the greatest influence in the world? It's not by us being this strong opposition to the world, railing against culture. That's that's not the greatest influence we can have. The greatest influence we have is when we pray. It's when we pray for the lost people around us. It's when we pray for our president and kings and queens and despotic rulers and governors and senators and leaders and all of the geographical places that the church inhabits. Because no one is outside of our requests for prayers. Every class of people, every type of people, we are praying for them. We pray for salvation. We're praying for repentance. We're praying that, that they be people of wisdom. We pray for that they advance righteous causes. We pray for reconciliation. We pray for God to do amazing things. We pray bold, audacious prayers. Why? So that the people of God can live peaceful and quiet lives. To what end? To the advance of the gospel. So the gospel can be propagated without hindrance. That's what we should pray for. This is what Paul is talking about here. You pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, especially these. Why? So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Where righteousness prevails. Where the gospel is unhindered. Where the people of God can gather together like we're doing right now. And I and you are not afraid that some government official is going to storm through that door with with, with guns to shut our worship service down. And we know that happens, right? We know that happens in other parts of the world. So we should thank God for the common grace he's given our nation here. Where we can gather like we're doing right now without fear. We should want that all over the world. We should want that in every place, in every sphere, in every city, in every nation on this planet. We should be praying for that. Peaceful, quiet lives, godly, dignified in every way. So the church could flourish. And it will flourish under the protection of the state, not in opposition to it. Wouldn't that be something? That's, I think, God's will. That's his desires. We can worship without fear. Romans 13 gives us the role of the state. Paul kind of gives us a clear definition as to its parameters, its fear of uh, authority and rule, right? And that is to preserve law and order, to punish the evildoer, to promote the general welfare uh, of its people, And it's authority that's instituted by God. And when the state operates in its lane, in its God-ordained role, when society is stable and flourishing and thriving, the church is free to worship God. The church is free to obey the laws of God. And the gospel spreads and advances. We should be praying for that. That's why we should be praying for those in positions of authority over us. That's our responsibility. We want those in high positions to administrate justice and administer it, to pursue peace, right? to advance righteous causes. And we thank God for the blessings of good government through His common grace. 
If you're like me and you hate the decay that you're seeing in society and culture, we need to take to prayer for all people, for those who influence and shape culture, those in media and entertainment and educational arenas and and the arts and science and, and, of course, marketplace leaders and our political leaders. Pray for those individuals. Lots of things are downstream from culture. So we want those who influence and shape culture to know Jesus Christ. To come to the knowledge of the truth. Pray for those who hate Christianity. Pray for those whom like, if I were to ask you and you were being transparent, you'd say, I hate those people. They're enemies of the cross. They may very well be. But I find it's hard to hate people that I'm praying for. I find it really hard to despise people that I'm coming before God in prayer and I'm crying out to the Lord to bring them to repentance and to save them. And I think that is the heart we're to have behind this. We want to be able to live peaceful and quiet lives, freely able to live out the moral implications of the gospel. Now, I know there's people say, oh, bring on the persecution. The gospel spreads really powerfully through persecution. It has, it can, it does. But is that what we're told to pray for? That's not what we're told to pray for. The witness of the church is much more powerful, not in persecution, but when we can openly, in freedom, live out the implications of the gospel among the people around us, because then they can see it and they go, I want that. Now I see what that looks like. Tell me about this Jesus, and you can freely tell them about Jesus. I'd prefer that. You go on and pray for persecution. May the Lord bring it to you. That's your prayer request. That ain't mine. I want us to be able to freely preach the gospel and freely gather like this. And look what he says. This is good and pleasing to God. That's a good thing. And that's why we should pray for it. The gospel to advance during this time of the writing here of the New Testament writers in the first century was the period called Pax Romana, Roman peace. You may have studied that. It was a a couple of centuries of incredible peace in the Roman Empire. Think about all of these nations that Rome conquered, right? And they would be this intense animosity, right? But Roman peace ensured that, yes, of course, through the military might of Rome, right, any... Any uprisings were quelled quickly, but what it enabled was these nations who before had never traded to begin to do that. And all these trade routes were established, roads were built. It was an incredible time of of Roman flourishing and peace. And what happened? Here comes the gospel, unhindered now, advances throughout the entire massive geographical footprint of Rome. Why? Because God gave them peace. The gospel go freely. Was there persecution? There was some. Not like they would come later, but during this time, there was relative freedom and ease for Christians to do what Christians needed to do, to gather and to advance the gospel in most areas of Rome. Who did that? God did that. God did that. We want that in every, in every way here. We should pray for peace and the flourishing of the gospel. Now, here's the second reason we should pray for all people. And here's where we'll end today in verse 3 and 4. The second reason we should pray for all people uh, is one that is much more profound 
And, and, it's, and it's a much more theological reason for us to grapple with. It says in verse 3 and 4, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Why pray all kinds of prayers for all people, especially those in high places? Because it's God's disposition. It is His desire for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This text definitively establishes God's desire for all people to be saved. Right? And that's why we're commanded to pray for all people in all nations for their salvation. This complementary idea is presented in Paul's letter, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What does that mean? Does it mean that everyone will be saved? Every single person will be saved. Does it mean that? Does that mean universalism is true? There's not going to be final judgment? Like everyone's going to heaven? No one will face the punishment of hell? No. It cannot mean any of those things. It cannot mean those things, right? Because the testimony of Scripture tells us otherwise. Well, doesn't Scripture teach the doctrine of divine election in which God sovereignly chooses whom He will save out of the mass of condemned humanity? Does this verse contradict that? No. No, there's no way. Where there's a seeming contradiction of Scripture, guess how you resolve that contradiction? Well, first of all, it's not a contradiction because Scripture does not contradict Scripture. If there's a seeming contradiction, it's with your understanding or interpretation. It's not with the Scripture. It's an important hermeneutical uh, principle called the analogy of Scripture. Analogia Scriptura. Okay, this is, this is important for understand. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Amen? That's how we resolve things that seem to be contradictory to us. We read one thing here... But we know it says something else here. How do we derive the true meaning of the text? Scripture always agrees with Scripture. And here's what Scripture teaches us. Election is taught in Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me give you just two passages. The scope of our teaching today is not in that. We've taught on this in the past. But Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. Look what... What God tells his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. All right, Who chose God? No one. God did the choosing, did he not? He chose Israel. Look at verse 7. It's not because you were an amazing nation. Because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's not because you were powerful. It's not because you were numerous. It's not because out of all the nations on the face of the earth, you stood out as the greatest. No, on the contrary, he says you're the least of the least. I chose you. Why? I set my love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of peoples because the Lord loves you and is fulfilling his covenantal promises. Okay, that's, that's huge. We don't have time to go into all those implications. But that's the pattern of salvation there. 
It is God's sovereign electing choice. Ephesians chapter 1, 3, and 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right? These are scriptures that cause a lot of heartburn and anxiety in a lot of people. But if we don't do, if we're not good students of God's word and we look at all the teaching of scripture concerning these things, especially when we're seeing two seeming contradictions or a paradox of some sort here. God desires all people to be saved, but we're also seeing scripture. God says he chooses those whom he elects and chooses those he is saving. Now, Romans 9 presents this teaching of election in no uncertain terms. I want to encourage you to read that. So what do we do when we see both of these truths presented in Scripture? What do we believe? You believe both of them. You affirm both of them. Because they're both true. Now, we're going to talk about what desires all men to be saved means here in a moment. Right? We confessionally and unapologetically uphold and believe the doctrine of divine election. Why? Because Scripture teaches it. And we can do that while simultaneously holding to the complementary truth that it is God's desire for all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, and come to repentance. My job is not to try to resolve that tension in your mind or my mind. They're both true. They both exist. I don't have to try to resolve the tension between election and human responsibility and culpability. Because in God's mind, this makes sense. It doesn't. Because guess what? I'm not God and neither are you. My puny, finite mind cannot wrap my mind around these glorious truths and mysteries. But they're revealed in Scripture. So I go, yes, God. Yes, God. I just need to be faithful to do what he's called me to do. And he's called me to do what? Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. Pray for the salvation of the nations and all people. Scripture affirms both. And that's why we're not to withhold the preaching of the gospel to anyone. Now, there is a general love God has for unredeemed humanity. He would have to. In this sense where he says it's God's desire that all men would be saved. Or his desire is that all would come to repentance. There is a general love. Love he has for redeemed humanity. However, it is not the same kind of love he has for his elect. It cannot be the same. Because that love that he has set upon those that are his is a love that he set on them from before the foundation of the world. And it was set upon them due to no foreseen good or merit in the part of those whom he sovereignly chooses and predestines to eternal life. I don't get that. You don't get that. We don't have to get that. There's no injustice on the part of God. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Right? But it is God's desire for everyone to know him and come to him in repentance and faith. And we affirm that as well. Again, it does not mean that all will be saved. We reject any sort of universalism that says there is no hell. No one will be punished. No one will be judged for their sins. To declare that is to declare that God is not a just God. 
that God's justice is worthless. We can't even count on God to be just. And we know that cannot be the case, right? Again, we have to define all, right? He cannot mean here every single person because then universalism would be true. Thus, no need for the cross, right? Doesn't make sense. The atonement doesn't make sense if nobody's punished, if the wicked aren't punished, if sin goes unpunished, right? He's using all like he did previously, not to mean every single person without exception, but all kinds of people without distinction. Let me give you a crude example. If I were to go to this side of the room, but I said, hey, after service, let's all go out to eat. Let's all go out to lunch. All. Now, we know all does not include everybody because I'm not addressing the totality of the room, but I am addressing all to the group that I'm addressing over here. Right? And if we all went out to lunch, is it any less true that all went out to lunch? No, all went out to lunch. All have responded. All, all are partaking in that. We use all in these kind of categorical ways uh, in our everyday language and use, and that's the kind of flow to the argument and the thought here and how you need to interpret this passage. It's a defined group that is in view here. But the most important thing is that Paul is disclosing to us the benevolent disposition of God towards humanity. It is his desire It is his desire that all would come to the knowledge of the truth and salvation. Ezekiel 33, 1, God says to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Isn't that God's desire? Repent, turn from your wickedness, turn to me. You keep going down that path, you die. Turn to me and live. That's God's desire. That's the call of the gospel, isn't it? It's his disposition. And it should be ours as well. That's why we pray for the lost. That's why we pray for repentance and for people to turn to Christ. We should not delight in the damnation of the wicked. We should not delight in the destruction of impenitent sinners. We should have the same heart as God here. We should want people to come to the knowledge of the truth, which is why we pray. Paul has this same desire in Romans 10.1 towards his own kinsmen. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you have that same heart for the lost, brothers and sisters? Do you desire the salvation of those who are lost apart from Christ and their only destination is eternity apart from God in the punishment of hell? That should be our heart. Now, when we talk about desire here, we are not talking about God's decree. God's desires are not God's decrees. Okay? Whatever God decrees... Whatever God wills to do, guess what? It happens. 100% every time, without fail, 100% success ratio. Okay? If that's not the case, then what is written here about God in Isaiah 46 cannot be true. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. What God has decreed, God will do. What God has willed to do and purposed to do happens every single time. Nothing can thwart the purpose, decree of God. But God has not decreed that every single human will be saved. Though it is His desire. God has decreed that all who put their faith and trust in the Son, those will be saved. God has decreed that everyone who gives to His Son will be saved. Yet God does not want all men to perish, but if they perish, they perish by their own fault because of their own rebellion and sin. Because that's what mankind deserves. It's what you and I deserve, brothers and sisters. Every son of Adam is under condemnation. All of mankind is totally depraved and unwilling and incapable of reaching out to God for salvation. Let's read a passage of scripture many of you are familiar with and the verses that follow. John 3, 16 through 19. For God so loved the world. Right? Everyone's favorite. Everyone loves verse 16, right? God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We love verse 16. God loves the world, right? Everyone who believes will be saved. But the whole passage in context tells us the world is under a condemnation. And it isn't the son that condemns them. They condemn themselves. How do they condemn themselves? Because they hate the light and they love the darkness. They love their sin and they hate the truth and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And if God, brothers and sisters, were to leave us in our natural state, in our natural willful inclination doing what we want to do we will every single time without fail reject him we will choose sin over god we will choose the desires the sinful desires of the flesh over heaven every single time none would be saved none would be saved because all stand condemned of their own doing so what's god to do then What's his desire for all men to be saved? But it's not a salvation without exception. It's a salvation without discrimination. What has God to do? For the condemnation that is brought upon them reveals his justice. God is holy, brothers and sisters. We've mentioned this many times. We think too little of our sin. We think too lightly of our sin. God is righteous and holy beyond your imagination. Pure and blameless. 
Condemnation reveals his justice. God would be perfectly justified to allow all of humanity to perish in their sin. Perfectly justified. All of us fall short of the glory of God. You and I. Every one of us. So he could let all humanity perish in their sin. And fully reveal his justice. But what could not be disclosed if he does that is his mercy and grace. Which is what God chooses to do. He chooses to reveal his mercy and grace by choosing a people out of the mass of condemned humanity as a gift to his son. Which ensures that the work of his son will be met with 100% success. John 6.37, Jesus declared, all that the father gives me will come to me. Will. You hear that? Well, this sounds like decree language here. God has willed the people to come to Christ Jesus. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Incredible assurance there, right? Without God's electing grace, none would be saved. None would come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's not of any foreseen merit. It's not of any previous decisionism that God sees in an individual that they will make. No, it's solely on God's mercy. It's solely on his kindness so that no one can boast, brothers and sisters. There's no credit you and I can take in salvation. If you know Jesus Christ today, what credit could you take in that? What boast could you make and say, look at me. God saw something amazing in me. My intellect was so good, I can reason my way to salvation. We have none of that. I say that with all humility, brothers and sisters. This doctrine should humble us to the ground. There is no place for arrogance. There's no place for boasting. It's God's work. In John 6, he continues, No one can come to me, how? Unless the Father has, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do we come to Christ? Well, we need to be drawn. Who does the drawing? Do we draw ourselves? Do we draw him closer to us? No, the Father draws us to Christ. No one can come unless the Father draws him, but no one can come also. And if they never come, it's because they don't want to come. Those whom the Father draws, which we call the effectual call, will come to Christ. He says so. And you and I are to herald the good news of salvation through Christ to everyone making a general call without distinction, calling them to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you don't know whom God has elected, do you? Any of you have a little election radar in, in your Bible? Oh, that's an elect. I'm going to preach the gospel. No. No, that's in God's wheelhouse. That's in the secret knowledge of God. That's none of our business. Our business is to pray for all people. Every prayer for all people and preach the gospel to everyone. And God will save everyone he has appointed unto eternal life. Now, how could Paul make this inclusivist claim that God desires all people to be saved while simultaneously teaching the doctrine of divine election elsewhere. Now, this is getting into where we're going next week, but verses 5 and 6 are the key. He says there's one God. 
And there's one mediator. This oneness of God, right? This oneness of God and this oneness of the mediatorial work of Christ is the foundation for the universality of the gospel. Because there's only one God, people are not to worship any other God. Because there's only one mediator, there is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's no other way. That's why we preach the gospel to every nation. We know that people are worshiping all sorts of false gods everywhere. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is forever to be praised and glorified and worshipped. And and the only worship that is due is, is to God. Because there's only one. So that's why we preach the gospel. That's the foundation for evangelism and mission. And we will look at that next week. So let's close here. What's Paul doing through this passage? He's encouraging the church to be mindful of the mission of the church Which is Christ's mission. He came to seek and save the lost. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. So we're to pray for all people. Every kind of people without distinction. We have a God who desires to save brothers and sisters. We have a God who desires for them to come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. So when we come together, that's what we're going to do. We pray. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. So that we can live peaceful, quiet lives for the advancement of the gospel. Pray for lost family members. Pray for your friends. Pray for co-workers. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for people hostile to the gospel. Pray believing and trusting that God desires their salvation. So that they may come to know God who deserves the worship of all people. Pray fervently. Pray without ceasing. Pray with confidence that God answers prayers. I close with Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked. This is John's vision. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My prayer is that we would be gripped by the glory of this vision of heaven. This innumerable multitude, all different people groups from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. Worshipping before the throne of God. And may that provoke us to get to our knees and pray bold and audacious prayer for the salvation of the lost around us to the glory of our great God.